It's April 21st, 1992. Rosia Vicia walks up the path of a house in Fresno, California. The sun's beating down, and the scent of blooming flowers hangs in the air. It's a beautiful day, but there's work to be done. Rosie's been cleaning for the Yule family for over 10 years now, and has a routine she follows religiously. On this Tuesday, though, two things strike her as odd immediately. An eerie hush greets her, as she makes her way across the threshold, replacing the usual high-pitched chirp of the security alarm. She finds that the plastic flap that conceals the keypad to disable the alarm has been flipped up, exposing the numbers beneath. Maybe some of the Yule family are at home. Rosie listens carefully for the telltale sound of footsteps or chatter, but is met with only silence. The second thing that unsettles her is the kitchen door. Usually, it's left open, but right now, it's closed tight. There's something not quite right about all of this. She walks towards the door slowly, with trepidation filling her every step. Pushing the door open, Rosie's heart skips a beat. The first thing she sees is the body of 24-year-old Tiffany Ewell. She's sprawled face down on the tiles, a pool of blood surrounding her head like a grotesque halo. Panic seizes Rosie. She flees from the house, running down the path and onto the neighbor's property. Sobbing, she manages to tell the Yule's neighbor what she has seen, and he calls 911. The wail of approaching sirens heralds the arrival of detectives John Souza and Chris Curtis from the Fresno County Sheriff's Office. Souza is 47 years old, with short, dark hair and a clipped mustache. Curtis is younger, though he sports the same facial hair as his partner. They enter the house and make a beeline for the kitchen. Hunkering down beside Tiffany, they examine her body. The cause of death is immediately obvious. There's a solitary bullet wound in the back of her head. The dried blood indicates that the body's been here for at least a couple of days. There's shock in the air. Fresno's a sleepy little California suburb. Murders here are rare, and this isn't just a random killing. It looks like an assassination. But the surprises in the Yule House are far from over. There's a shout from a cop further down the hallway that leads to the garage. Susie gets up and walks towards the commotion. He finds a man, probably in his mid-fifties, laying on the ground. There's a gunshot wound in the back of his head, too. A pool of dried blood is soaked into the carpet around him, and flecks of blood spatter the walls. Just out of his reach is a rolled-up newspaper dated April 19th, an addition from two days earlier. It's a pretty good indication of when the murders took place. The man is quickly identified as Dale Yule, the patriarch of the family. And the horror doesn't end with Dale's murder. A third body is found in the home office, that of Glee Yule, Dale's wife, and Tiffany's mother. Unlike the others, it appears she got a look at her killer. She's lying on her back with her hands close to her face as if in a defensive pose. 
There are four bullet wounds in her body. Maybe she tried to fight back or run away once she realized what was happening to her family. Either way, the gunman got her in the end. The detectives reconvene, staring at each other in disbelief. A triple homicide is unheard of around these parts, but a possible motive quickly emerges. You see, Dale Ewell was the owner of an aviation business and was a very rich man with assets valued at close to $8 million. It's easy to see why someone might target the Ewells in the hopes of getting their hands on some of the cash. But who? Who would commit such a brazen attack on a well-liked and respected family? Who was it that killed the Ewells in cold blood? My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. When three members of the Ewell family are found shot to death in their Fresno home, the news is met with shock. Veteran detective John Souza and his partner Chris Curtis are assigned to the case. The question on their lips is, why would someone pick off this well-liked family in such a merciless way? Well, it turns out that Dale Yule was a very rich man. With a vast fortune to his name, there could be as many as eight million reasons why Dale Yule and his family were gunned down. From Noiser, this is Operation Three Stooges. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Sousa draws himself away from the bodies, trying to make sense of what he's seeing. He's been to hundreds of crime scenes. The cruelty the human race can inflict upon itself doesn't shock him anymore. But that doesn't mean he's completely desensitized to it. In the living room, he finds a photograph of the Yule family. Tiffany, at the age of 24 years old, is the same age as his own daughter. It's a little too close to home for Sousa. And there's a young man in the photograph, too. He's probably in his early 20s and is presumably another Yule child, judging by the similarities in their features. They'll have to let the poor boy know what has happened. The news will no doubt shatter his world. Sousa moves away from the photograph and takes in his surroundings. The room is a mess. Drawers from a sideboard have been pulled out their contents strewn across the room. There are cassette tapes littering the floor and crumpled documents balled up and thrown here and there. It's the same story in the upstairs rooms. Mountains of clothes have been discarded on the bedroom floor, as well as bed sheets. A high-end stereo has been tipped onto its side. Now, on the surface, it looks like a simple case of robbery, but before joining Homicide, Sousa was a robbery detective. He's got a good sense for this type of thing. To his eye, it all looks a little staged. Sure, Dale Yule's wallet's been emptied, and some of Glee's jewelry appears to be missing. 
but there are too many high-priced items left in their rightful places for the scene to be convincing. Experience has taught him to trust his gut, and right now, it's telling him that the state of the house is a diversion, the killer's way of throwing the cops off the scent. Sousa treks back downstairs and watches the forensic team work their magic. By the end of the day, they have two interesting leads. First, there are fluorescent fibers present on each of the three bodies. They're so fine that a less competent officer might have missed them, but not firearms expert Alan Boudreaux. Still, they're new even to this experienced eye, and he can't figure out where they came from. The second thing is that when he manages to locate the bullets used in the murders, he finds they're marked in an odd way. The 9mm bullets have unusual scrapes on the end, as if they'd been gouged or scratched before being fired. Boudreaux reasons that the gun used must have been modified, perhaps in an attempt to suppress some of the noise. When the cops search the surrounding area for the murder weapon, Sousa and Curtis head back to the station to put their heads together. The obvious motive for the murders is financial gain, but Susan knows that jumping to the first conclusion is bad police work. Realistically, there could have been any number of motives behind the attack. Maybe Dale was having an affair, or Tiffany owed money to someone who didn't have a lot of patience. Perhaps Glee, who used to work for the CIA, had gotten on someone's bad side. Someone who held a grudge. And when the detectives begin digging into the lives of the Yules, another motive emerges. It appears that not everyone was a fan of how Dale Yule did business. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, but when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. When the detectives speak to ex-employees of Dale, they find that Mo saw him as a ruthless son of a gun. He didn't care whose toes he stepped on to get to the top. And sometimes, he treated his employees badly if they weren't following his orders to the letter. He may have been a successful businessman, but he sure rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. Could an ex-employee with a grudge be the one who pulled the trigger? Maybe someone Dale fired? It's a theory they'll certainly look into, and another quickly establishes itself. As well as running his aviation business, detectives find that he had a sideline in real estate. He made some decisions 
that nearly cost the other investors millions of dollars. There were some bad feelings there, for sure, but enough for one of them to resort to murder? It might seem a little pie in the sky, but it's a lead Sousa and Curtis have to follow up on. But before they can start the investigation, news reaches them that the Yule's youngest child, 21-year-old Dana, has arrived at the station, fresh from Santa Clara University. Maybe he'll have some vital information that'll help move the case along. Dana Yule is waiting for Sousa and Curtis in an interview room. He's tall and clean-shaven, dressed in expensive clothes. His dark hair is cut short, and his cheekbones are prominent. The detectives offer their condolences before asking if he's okay to begin the interview. He gives a curt nod, displaying a little emotion. Sousa asks if he knows of any motive the killer would have a reason why anyone would want his family dead. Dana shakes his head and tells the detective that he can't think of anything. His voice is quiet. His answers are short and businesslike. It quickly becomes clear that Dana is in shock. The detectives decide that Dana has had enough for one day. They stop the interview, allowing him time to take in the seismic events. Despite how he must be feeling, Dana Ewell agrees to meet the detectives the very next day to do a walkthrough of the crime scene. It's hardly ideal, visiting the place where his entire family died so soon after the incident. But maybe he can sense that time is of the essence when it comes to catching the killer. Perhaps he wants the case solved so he can move on. Either way, the following morning, Susan and Curtis meet Dana outside his family's home. He follows them up the path and in the door. Blood spatter still coats the walls, and the chalk outlines of his fallen family members are right there on the floor. Patina doesn't even seem to notice. At one point, he even steps right into the outline where his mother had bled to death. The walkthrough with Dana has given them more questions than answers. Is his lack of emotion really down to shock, or is he hiding something? The thing is, by all counts, Dana Ewell had a good relationship with his parents. He had no reason to want them dead. He also has an ironclad alibi. On the morning of their murders, the Ewells had hung out at their beachfront holiday home in Pajaro Dunes together. Dana had left late that morning to visit his girlfriend in San Francisco. He had dinner with their family later that evening, including her father, John Zent, an FBI agent. Still, the detectives think there's something off about him. Sousa describes him as the most unusual person he has met in his 28 years on the job, while Curtis calls him dirty. There are other leads to follow up on, but the detectives make a note to keep an eye on Dana Ewell. Sousa spends the following week chasing up leads, he talks to ex-employees of Dale's aviation business and investors in the failed real estate venture. It quickly becomes clear that no one he speaks to has a big enough motive to turn a gun on the Yules. I mean, sure, he was tough to work for, but so are a million bosses. Sousa's frustration at the dead end doesn't last long. A 
A week later, he and Curtis meet with some of Dale Yule's brothers, who have come to the station to share their concerns. Richard Yule is disturbed by how Dana acted at the funeral. Rather than being tearful or sad, he acted like he was hosting a social gathering. He greeted the guests with a smile and was seen laughing and joking around. Now, of course, everyone processes grief differently, but considering the circumstances, it's worth taking note of. So, it was a day after the funeral. He went a step further, throwing a boat party with some friends. That isn't the end of the Yule brothers' concerns. They say that Dana also acted inappropriately at the will reading. When the will was read aloud, it became clear that Dana wasn't going to get his near $8 million inheritance in one lump sum. The document stipulated that it would be paid to him in small chunks over the next 15 years. Dana was incensed by this news. According to one of his uncles, he slammed his fist on a table and shouted, How could my father have done this to me? Dana's belligerence and seeming lack of care for the fate of his family feeds into what the police are already thinking, that there's something off about him. It forces them to consider the unthinkable possibility that he was somehow involved in the violent demise of his parents and sister. But the cops know for certain that he could not have fired the gun. His alibi had been verified by multiple witnesses. He was 200 miles away. If he is involved, that means there's at least one more person mixed up in all of this. So who was it that pulled the trigger? Sousa travels to Santa Clara University, where Dana is studying. The campus is a hive of activity. Students with backpacks hurry this way and that to different classrooms. On the lawn, a group of kids are tossing a frisbee back and forth, whooping and laughing. Sousa hangs around near Dana's dorm for a couple of hours, asking questions about their suspect. It quickly becomes apparent that while Dana is popular on campus, he can come across pretty arrogant. He values wealth and has never hesitated in letting people know that his clothes are expensive or flaunting a brand new watch. He's regularly seen driving around campus in his top-of-the-line BMW. Another thing becomes obvious, too. While he has a big group of friends, he doesn't seem to have many close friends, people who really know him. But there's one person he seems to hang out with a lot, Joel Radovich. If reports are to be believed, Joel is an unemployed drug addict who likes to spend his days playing video games. Could Dana have persuaded his friend to gun down his family, perhaps in return for some of the money he stood to inherit? Suze has been around the block more than a couple of times in his career, and it's not the most outlandish theory he's come across. Sousa decides it's time to rattle the cage a little more, and he seeks out Mr. Radisvich for an interview. It's May, 1992, a month on from the triple homicide. The detectives have arranged to meet Radisvich this morning at a Holiday Inn restaurant. There are a few stragglers spooning the last remains of their bowls of cereal into their mouths, and a couple of employees waiting to clear the place up. 
Joel Radovich strolls in a couple of minutes after Sousa and Curtis get there. He's not what detectives were expecting. While Dana's well-dressed and outgoing, Radovich is unkempt with straggly dyed hair and thick eyebrows. Today, he's fidgety. His eyes dart around the room as if searching for a fire exit or a means of escape. When Sousa asks about his relationship with Dana, he surprises them by saying that they're really just acquaintances. They lived in the same dorm for a while and hung out together sometimes, but were never tight. Aside from talking about school, there was no other communication between the two. This is a blatant lie. Sousa has it on good authority from many of the students at Santa Clara that he and Dana were close friends. But to keep Radovich sweet, he ignores it for a while and presses on with the interview. He asks Radovich where he was on April 19th, the day of the shootings. Radovich claims that he spent the day hanging out at an auto body shop near his home. He went there a lot with his friends and would often just watch TV in the back room or help move the cars from the lot into the garage. The cops thank him for his time and head over to the auto body shop to check up on his alibi. Turns out, Radovich was lying about that too. You see, the owner knows Radovich, but he is sure that he didn't see him on the day of the murders. All right, now, why would Radovich lie about his whereabouts on that day? Was Radovich involved in the killings? Was he the one who pulled the trigger? Or is he just another small part in a grander plot? Detective Souza isn't sure, but he intends to find out. Surveillance units are put in place to watch Dana and Radovich, a plan that reaps rewards almost immediately. It's June. 1992. Sousa sits in an unmarked car just down the street from the Yule's house, where Dane has been staying since the semester ended. The sun visor's pulled down to help shield his eyes against the blinding rays of the light. His back's starting to hurt, and a camera hangs from his neck, but so far, he's not had much cause to use it. Dana Yule appears to be living a quiet life within the walls of the family home. Sousa spends countless hours hunched in the driver's seat of his car, eating junk food with his eyes fixed on the house. A lesser investigator would have given up days ago, but while media interest in the case may have waned, Sousa's hasn't. He's like a dog with a bone, and his perseverance is rewarded a couple of weeks into the sting when Radisich starts coming by. At first, his visits to the house are sporadic, but before long, it appears that he's moved in. Considering Radisvich had told the cops that he and Yule were nothing more than classmates, seems kind of odd, right? When the pair ventures out in Dana's BMW, Sousa tails them through town, always careful to hang a few cars back. Over the course of a couple of days, the pair visit a number of banks. Eager to find out what they're up to, Sousa applies for access to Dana's financial records, and in August 1992, he's approved. The papers make for interesting reading. It appears that Dana is essentially bankrolling his new roommate. 
he supplied Radisvich with a new pager and paid for his health insurance. On top of this, Radisvich is taking helicopter flying lessons costing 500 bucks an hour. Question is, why? Why the sudden generosity? Could it be that Dane is paying Radisvich off for gunning down his family? It feels like the obvious conclusion, right? But it's circumstantial. Susan knows he needs something more concrete. In the months following these revelations, the cops questioned Dana a number of times, but learned nothing new. When they tell him they know he's living with Radisvich and that they're spending lavishly, he continues to deny any involvement. So, in an effort to ruffle his feathers, the Fresco County Sheriff's Department released a statement in November 1992, saying that the case is still open and that Dana Yule cannot be ruled out as a suspect. It's the first time they've publicly acknowledged that the youngest child might have played a part in the murders. In response, Dana releases his own statement through his lawyer, rebuking these claims and carries on with his life. Perhaps spooked by the cop's announcement, Radisvich disappears off the map. But if he's as innocent as he claims, why would he run? It's February, 1993. A few weeks back, the cops located Radisvich in LA and have been tailing him ever since. It seems that ever since Dana stopped bankrolling him, he's been living a nomadic life. Sometimes he sleeps in his friends' houses, while other nights are spent in the back seat of his car. He doesn't seem to follow much of a pattern, except that whenever he wants to make a call, he visits this one specific set of payphones outside of 7-Eleven. Today, police have set up an undercover sting to listen in. An undercover cop strides outside of a 7-Eleven store towards the parking lot, carrying a bag with some groceries in it. As he reaches his car, he checks his pager. There's no message, but he pretends there is. Feigning an emergency, he rushes to the payphones at the side of the store and shoves a couple of quarters into the coin slot. At the payphone beside him, Radisvich is glancing at his own pager and dialing a number. When the call connects, he speaks in staccato bursts. He sounds panicked. The cop mutters a few words into his own phone, keeping up the pretense that he's on a call, but all his attention is focused on their suspect. Radisvich finishes his phone call by saying, I want a quarter of a million, and I want it now. He then slams the receiver back into its cradle and walks away. The undercover cop ends his own imaginary conversation and makes a real call to Sousa, detailing what he just heard. Sousa is pleased that the sting operation has reaped rewards so quickly. He immediately contacts the switchboard and traces the call that Radisvich made. It seems he was talking to someone on a payphone in Santa Clara, which, you guessed it, is where Dana Yule is at school now that the semester started. Why would Radisvich be demanding that sort of money from a friend? Susan can only think of one reason.
In an effort to uncover more about their conversations, Sousa clones Radisvich's pager. Now this means that any time Radisvich gets a message, let's say from Dana Yule, it'll also appear on Sousa's modified device. But nothing happens. Over the next couple of months, the two men stop communicating. So, to try to smoke them out, Sousa and Curtis plan on paying Dana a little visit at his university. A couple of months later, in May, Sousa and Curtis climb the stairs of Dana's dorm and hammer on his door. Dana opens it so that only a sliver of his face is showing. He stares wide-eyed at the detectives. It's been a while since they spoke. Dana doesn't invite the detectives into his room. So from the hallway, Sousa gives him some updates on the case, though Dana barely says a word in reply. It's clear he wants the detectives gone. As the detectives finish their spiel, Dana tries to shut the door. But before he can, Curtis lobs in a figurative grenade. By the way, he shouts, we think Joel Radisvich killed your family. The blood drains from Dana's face, and he slams the door shut. Susan and Curtis have done their bit. Now, they just need to wait and see if the rest of their plan falls into place. Sure enough, a little later, a message appears on Sousa's cloned pager. It's short and to the point, instructing Radisvich to call a number that evening. Sousa tracks the number to a payphone off campus. The two detectives drive to the location and park up in an unmarked car. At the requested time, the phone starts ringing, and Dana Yule is there to pick it up. Over the next couple of months, the clandestine phone calls continue. Detectives listen in and can tell that Dana and Radisvich are worried. In one of the calls, Radisvich says, They don't have evidence. They'll try to catch you in a lie. Another time he says, just play the game. It's clear what they're alluding to, but crucially, they never actually mention the murders explicitly. And then, in the summer of 1993, another player in this wicked game emerges. On June 8th, 1993, Radisvich is at his favored payphone at the 7-Eleven. Another undercover cop is shadowing him, listening in to every word. There's the usual small talk, but then Radisvich tells whoever's on the other line that he needs a package delivered to a man named Jack Ponce. It's not a name the cops have heard mentioned in the course of the two-year investigation. After some very quick detective work, they find out that he's a friend of Radisvich's older brother, his details are pulled from the system, and Sousa speeds over to his apartment. Sousa interviews him, but Ponce has nothing to say. He claims he doesn't know anything about the case, but Sousa doesn't buy it. For the next couple of months, he keeps on Ponce's back, calling him into the station for a chat every so often. Finally, the pressure seemingly becomes too much for Ponce. In May 1994, he tells the detectives that he once owned a gun, but it was stolen. For the first time, he mentions a weapon. When Susan inquires about what type of gun, Ponce tells him 
that it was an 18-9 assault rifle, capable of firing 9mm rounds. Now, you might remember that the Ewell family was killed by 9mm bullets. Ponce claims that he used it to deal with possums in his attic. Seems like a pretty high-powered rifle for getting rid of vermin, right? In order to find out if this is one big coincidence, Sousa passes the information over to Alan Boudreau. The firearms expert follows instructions from a gun book found in Radovich's apartment that he'd ordered a year before the murders. He drills holes in the barrel of an 18-9. When it's been modified to the exact specifications, he fires the same type of 9mm bullets used in the shootings. Lo and behold, the unusual markings left on the test bullets are identical to those found at the crime scene. It seems detectives have finally found the murder weapon. Except they haven't. Not really. They know which model of gun it is, and they know Ponce once owned one. But as for the actual weapon used, well, it could be anywhere. That is, if Ponce is telling the truth about it being stolen. With so many leads to keep track of, detectives put together a timeline of the case on a roll of paper. When unfurled, the roll reaches 100 feet in length. It's so long that detectives have to use the office hallway when they want to look at it. It's a color-coded tapestry of the crime so far. Every phone call, interview, line of communication, and cash withdrawal is listed. It lays the investigation out plainly and in chronological order, and it's enough for the DA to issue arrest warrants for Dana Yule, Joel Radovich, and Jack Ponce under the name Operation Three Stooges. In early 1995, the cops swoop into action. Ponce is arrested at the restaurant where he works, while Radovich is caught at the Taco Bell where he eats most of his meals. In March, Dana is the last of the trio to be arrested. Very quickly, Ponce cracks and agrees to cut a deal with the police in exchange for his immunity, giving the cops two vital pieces of evidence. The first is that Radovich confessed to Ponce. One day while the two were hanging out on the beach, Radovich told him all about the killings, including only details the trigger man could know even sketched a plan of the Yule house in the sand before wiping it away again. Now, the second thing he tells the cops is that his gun was not stolen. He had, in fact, sold it to Radovich for 500 bucks. A couple of days after selling it, Radovich returned and told Ponce to get rid of it. Ponce stripped the gun and discarded the parts in various locations around LA. Can't remember where all the parts ended up, but he knows where the barrel is, the part forensics are most interested in, the part which could put an end to the investigation once and for all. It's late March, 1995. A team of detectives and forensic officers pull up outside an abandoned lot in the LA suburb of Reseda. They emerge from their air-conditioned cars into the full force of the afternoon sun. It seems like Lady Luck's smiling down on him. Lots like this in LA rarely remain empty for this long. 
The team dragged their equipment onto the land and began digging. The grass is overgrown, and thickets of weeds have sprouted up from the dirt. Shovels are thrust into the ground, and mounds of earth are soon piled high. But there's no sign of the gun barrel. Has Ponce supplied them with incorrect information? Or has some unknown player been here to dispose of it before the cops got wind of it? Frustration starts to grow when there's a loud clunk of metal on metal. The man with the shovel gets down on his hands and knees and begins clawing at the dirt. All eyes are now trained on him, and eventually he stands in victory. In his hand is a length of metal caked in the dirt. When it's been photographed at the scene, the item is taken to the lab where it's cleaned. As the dirt is scrubbed from it, it becomes clear that Ponce was telling them the truth. It's a gun barrel with holes drilled in the top of it, just as instructed in Radisvich's book. When Bordeaux tests the barrel, it produces identical scratch marks on the bullets. They have their smoking gun, literally, and the case seems like it has finally been solved. Now, to really tie things up, detectives search Radisvich's apartment among the empty chip bags and general detritus, they find tennis balls that have been cut in half. Doesn't mean much to the detectives, but to Alan Boudreau, it's the final piece of the puzzle. You might remember that he found fluorescent fibers on each of the three bodies found in the Yule house. It seems that as well as drilling the holes in the barrel of the gun, Radisic took another piece of advice from this gun manual. It becomes clear that he manufactured a homemade silencer constructed from tennis balls and a length of plastic that would have been attached to the end of the gun. When the trigger was squeezed and the bullets passed through the barrel, they ripped through the balls too, gathering some fibers as they zoomed by. That's how the fibers ended up on the Yules. With insurmountable evidence, Radisvich and Dana Yule's guilt look undeniable. All that's left to do is bring the case to trial. It's December, 1997, almost five years after Dale, Glee, and Tiffany Yule were gunned down. The trial begins. Over the course of the four-month court case, the judge and jury hear that Dana organized the hit because he couldn't wait to get his hands on the inheritance. He even killed his sister so that he wouldn't have to share his $8 million windfall. He planned the whole thing and got Radisic involved to do the dirty work in return for some of the money. There's even a suggestion that he only befriended Radisic in the first place as he thought he could manipulate him into pulling the trigger. All the way through the hearing, Dana's defense team pleads his innocence. Radisic's team, on the other hand, are convinced that the overwhelming amount of evidence at the cop's disposal points to only one outcome. They make him plead guilty in order to fight a possible death penalty. In April, 1998, Dana and Joel are sentenced to life in prison for murder. Both men narrowly escape the death penalty by a couple of juror votes. Radosich is imprisoned at Mule Creek State Prison two hours from San Francisco. Dana is in Corcoran State Prison until recently home to cult leader Charles Manson. 
neither will ever see the light of day again. As for the detectives, well, Chris Curtis is still on the force. Sousa retired just five months after the sentencing of Dana Yule. He did some public speaking work and tended to his farm, preferring a quiet life. Sadly, Sousa passed away in 2022 at the age of 77. It's hard to sum up the life of a man with mere words, but Curtis did a pretty good job when he said, Sousa was a good friend, a great partner, and a great family man. Hey listeners, this episode is the final episode of season one. Thanks so much for tuning in. That sure was one wild ride, wasn't it? If you want more exciting, immersive audio drama based on real stories, be sure to check out Noiser's other shows by heading over to Noiser.com. That's N-O-I-S-E-R.com. There's a world of podcasts just waiting for you. Listen on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again for listening. We wish you all a very happy holiday season. Until next time.